You're listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. This sermon was preached by Joshua Jordan, who serves as the lead pastor at LifeGate Church. Find out more about us at www.lifegateseguin.com. If you have a Bible with you, if you will make your way to the letter of Galatians. If you don't have a Bible with you, can I encourage you to do something? You're going to be lost most of the time if you don't have a Bible. So if you don't have one, there's some on that back table. Pull one up on your phone because it doesn't matter what I say. If what I say is not coming from God's word, it, it, it makes no difference. So I want to encourage you to follow along. As we look at God's holy, inspired, and authoritative word. Since we have a number of guests with us this morning, let me just let you know our pattern here as a church. We believe that one of the most beneficial things we can do as a church is to take a book of the Bible and make our way through that book. And so we've been doing that. We've been in the letter of Galatians. We are in chapter 3, and today we're going to be looking at verses 19 through 29. And that's because last week we looked at verses 15 through 18. So we're picking up where we left off. So I want to invite you now to follow along as I read God's holy, inspired, and authoritative word. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one. But God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. So that by the promise of faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. Imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was your guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come. We are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male and female. For we are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. May God bless the preaching of his word. What should you do if you get lost in the woods? Statistics show that around 2,000 people get lost while exploring the woods Each year, 
Now, I don't know what your summer plans are, whether you plan on going camping or backpacking or hiking in a national park. But just in case you find yourself in a situation where you get lost or you're at least disoriented while in the woods, I want you to remember the following. The U.S. Forest Service recommends that you take the following four steps. And they gave these four steps in a helpful acronym. The acronym is STOP. STOP. So here, here's what all four things they would say to do. Number one, S. Stay calm. Don't move and don't panic. They said most people that get lost get further in trouble because they began to say, well, oh man, okay, should I go this way? Well, I came that way and it's not leading me out. And they keep moving and they start getting nervous and they start getting anxious and it only makes things worse. They think, well, if I stand here, I mean, in, in a few hours it's going to get dark. I'm wasting time. I should keep moving. They said, no, that's actually the opposite you should do. You should stop, stay calm, and don't move. Second thing, T, think. Take some time to think. Go over in your mind, where are you in, in, in vicinity? I mean, I, I know that you're not clear exactly where you are. You wouldn't be lost, but exact, are, are you by a river? Are you here? Are you there? How did you get here? How long have you been gone? How long has it been since maybe you've seen someone or seen a change of scenery? I mean, have you just been in, the, in, in nothing but trees? Or has there been a cliff? Just starting to think, which leads to the third thing. Observe. Hopefully you took a compass. Get out your compass. Find your direction. Pay attention to the path that you've been on. Listen for things like streams. Because they say if you can hear a stream, stay along it. It can, it can lead you out. But do you see the point so far? is what, what, what do we often do if we found ourselves lost in the woods? We wouldn't stay calm. We would start moving. We're probably not thinking. We're probably not observing. We're just panicking. And that leads to the last thing. P doesn't stand for panic. It stands for plan. Make a plan before moving on. If you don't have a plan, here's what they suggest. It's better to stay put than to keep moving. It'll be easier for them to find you if you just stay where you are than if you just keep aimlessly wandering. And if you are moving somewhere, it needs to be because you know why you're doing that. So there's that acronym again. Stay calm. Think. Observe. Plan. These four steps may not get you out of the woods, but they may help you from getting lost any further, or at least panicking and making things worse. Now, you may be thinking, Josh, we so appreciate the public announcement. If we ever get lost in the woods, we will remember the acronym STOP. But what in the world does this have to do with the text this morning and the letter of Galatians? Well, I don't know about you, but I a number of times have felt as we've made our way through the letter of Galatians like we are traveling through a dense forest. And it is very easy at many times and many turns to find yourself disoriented and lost. Maybe even after I read this passage this morning about the law and about all these things and you're 
your eyes are starting to roll back in your head like, what in the world is this about? You can find yourself disoriented and lost a number of times throughout this letter. So I, I want to take that acronym and help us not feel so lost in this letter. Let's, let's stop. Let's stop for a moment and let us stay calm. Let us not just move aimlessly. Let us consider where we are, how we got here, and let us think carefully about the best path forward that will lead us out of this dense forest. Because, you know, all this talk about law and covenants and Jews and Gentiles and how Abraham points to Jesus, it can leave us all feeling confused and lost at what is the point of this sacred letter. I know it's God's word. I don't mean to disrespect it. But I'm not getting what Galatians is about. I just can't relate to it. All of this talk of all of these things, going back to the Old Testament and laws, I, I'm just, many Sundays, I'm barely hanging on. What in the world is happening? Well, let me point out where we've been so far. And let me suggest to you the route we ought to travel before going any further in this letter. Here's the primary theme of this letter. So now we're stepping back from the trees and we're looking at the forest so that we don't feel lost in what is this text about. The primary theme of this letter is this. How can people be made right with a holy God? Maybe to put it differently, what must someone do to have a relationship with God? That's what the, book of, the letter of Galatians is about. It's simply getting at that question. What must someone do to have a relationship with God? Now, if this was a quiz, you would have two options on your multiple choice. A, is it law keeping and being good? Hopefully being good enough. Is that what you would circle? Or, to answer the question, what must someone do to have a relationship with God, would you circle B? It's by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, that brings us to the second theme. There's a second theme that runs parallel to this first one in Galatians. And we must not forget about this theme. It's a very important theme. And we've already been introduced to it. But I'm afraid in light of today's text, we could totally get lost in the see the tree and lose the forest. So let's, let's be reminded of this theme. It shows up for the first time in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. So I want to invite you to look back at chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. And Paul here is recounting a situation, a very significant situation that those in Galatia needed to hear about. He writes this, but when Cephas, that's just another name for Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Can you see what the problem is now? Here's the second thing. There was a separation between those who were united 
in Christ. For those who all checked choice B, how do you have a right relationship with God? By faith through Jesus Christ, they were all gathered together. But at some point, there began to be tensions between Jews and Gentiles over how should we observe the Mosaic law and especially how do we understand things like circumcision, which was to take place in the Old Testament. And now that Christ has come, it seems like you're saying that's not necessary, but we think it still is. And now, among all of those who circled letter B, they're divided. There's two sides of the room. And that's a problem. That's a big problem. And remembering this, keeping our focus on these two themes will help us navigate through the deep forest of Galatians and it will keep us from getting lost. If you, for the rest of this book, remember these two themes. That's all Galatians is dealing with. It's dealing with the, ver- the vertical. How am I made right with God? Through Jesus Christ. And how do I relate to others? In the same way. Through my relationship with Jesus Christ. That brings us now back to our text for this morning. If I could summarize the point of this passage in a single sentence, it would be this. The message of the gospel not only defines how we relate to God. It also defines how we ought to relate to others. Now, at first you may not see that. We're not going to get there till near the end, but that's the point. I want you to, to know so that you don't feel lost. We're not talking about law and all these things. And you're like, I have no idea where we are. Just follow through the, the dense force. And on the other side, know this is where we're going to land. That the point being made is that the message of the gospel not only defines how we relate to God. It also defines how we ought to relate to others. And, and here's our roadmap moving forward. We're going to break down this passage into the three following points. Verse 19 through 20, we see the sin within us. Verses 21 through 25, the solution that is outside of us. And verses 26 through 29, the Savior who unites us. Let's look at the sin within us. Verses 19 through 20. Let's start here. Because the false teachers in Galatia, remember, we want to understand the context of why this letter was originally written. Yes, we're not Galatians. Lot is different from their circumstances and their situation. But God chose to talk to us today through letters written then. So first, we have to understand what does it mean then before we say, okay, how does it apply to us today? And here's what's going on. The false teachers in Galatia, they had elevated the Mosaic law, the law God gave to Moses. They were elevating it to a place in which God never intended it to function. They're saying things about the Mosaic Law. They're treating it in a way that Paul is saying, no, 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 no. That's not what God had in store for the Mosaic Law. That's not why He gave it. And they're putting it in this place. So what does Paul have to do? He has to dismantle the false notion that the Mosaic Covenant actually changed the terms in which God originally made with Abraham. If you remember back to last week, that one of the points Paul was making was, okay, he's talking to a room filled with people who would have known their Old Testament. He says, which one came first? The Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic covenant. Obvious answer, Abrahamic covenant. And, and, and what does the Abrahamic covenant do? It made promises. And how were those promises received? By faith. Okay, so we're all in agreement here. 
But then you see that the Mosaic law came later and your danger and your mistake is you think that because the Mosaic covenant is all about law keeping, then therefore that changed the Abrahamic covenant. So it started with faith. Now it's about law keeping. <clears throat> wrong. You're getting it wrong. And Paul is having to show them that they're not understanding that the way God structured things, they're missing. And that was the po- one of the points we looked at last night. Now think for a minute about what, what's happening here. By informing those in Galatia that the Mosaic covenant was actually inferior to the covenant God made with Abraham. And because it is temporary. And because it doesn't bring the promise of life like the Abrahamic covenant did. That would have raised an obvious question, wouldn't it? An obvious question that demanded an answer. And what's that question? Okay, then why did God give the law? If it was always about faith, and you're saying the Mosaic Covenant, which is about law-keeping, did not change God's original covenant, then why did God even give the law? Right? That would have been the obvious question in everybody's mind, and Paul knows that, and so he brings it up, and then he answers it. Look at verse 19. Why then the law? He answers, it was added because of transgressions. Now, the, the answer Paul gave, I, I can almost guarantee you, surprised the original audience to whom he was writing. If they had flags, they would have thrown it. They would have said, Paul, are you out of your mind? For a guy who grew up knowing the Jewish Scriptures, you, you, you obviously don't know what you're talking about. How could you say that? See, Paul says, according to the Scripture... The main purpose of the law, listen, was not to separate Jews from Gentiles by showing Gentiles to be, or Jews to be righteous because of their law keeping in contrast to Gentiles who are sinners because they don't keep the law. That's how the Galatians would have thought. That's how so many Jews would have thought. Here's what makes us different. Us Jews different from Gentiles. We have the law. We're law keepers. We're not like those sinners, the Gentiles. And that's, that's the importance of the law. And Paul says, no, it's not. And that's why you're in the trouble you're in. That's why you've been deceived the way you have been. And now, if you remember the context of this book, after Paul preaches the gospel a year later, less than a year later, they're now rejecting that message and they're going back to law keeping. And Paul's trying to appeal to them. See, the law, Paul says, was given to reveal to God's people that they too were great sinners. Their mouth must have been on the floor. They would have said, no, Paul. God gave us the law to show that we weren't like those sinners, the Gentiles. And Paul says, no. The law was given to reveal to my people that they too were great sinners. The late John Stott, English preacher and commentator, said the following. I thought this summarized it well. After God gave the promise to Abraham, He gave the law to Moses. Why? Simply because he had to make things worse before he could make them better. You see, the law exposed sin, provokes sin, condemns sin. The purpose of the law 
was to lift the lid off our human respectability and disclose what we are really like underneath. Sinful, rebellious, guilty, under the judgment of God, and help us to save ourselves. That's why God gave His people the law. Not so that they can pat themselves on the back and say, well, at least we're not like the Gentiles. The law pulls back the veneer. Pulls back the curtain. Raises up the hood. And says, let's look at what's really going on inside. Because you can act like you're righteous, but as Jesus said to the Pharisees, you're just really whitewashed tombs. You may look good on the outside, but the law showing you, that's not the story. You're no better off than anyone else on the planet. We're all sinners who cannot save themselves. See, don't misunderstand the purpose of the law. The law of God didn't make people sin. In other words, had there been no law, people would have still been sinners. So Paul's not, there could be a number of misunderstandings and Paul's trying to help us make sure that we don't we don't get this wrong. Look at the rest of verse 19. He says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. So he, he, he says it's, the law was given to increase transgressions. What does he mean by that? Well, let me give you two illustrations so that you can see what Paul isn't meaning and what he is meaning. Imagine, I see a number of teachers here this morning. Imagine a classroom in which the teacher gets this wild idea that everything will go better if there's no rules. And all the students said, Amen. All the teachers shriek in horror, right? Imagine, she says, for a semester, we're going to have zero rules. And then, after Christmas break, she sets all the students down, gives them a list of 50 things, and says the first time you break it, you're going to be expelled. See, that would be how we could view the law. As if God's people were just doing their own thing, and then all of a sudden God shows up and says, okay, here's all the rules, I've let you just do your own thing, and, and now you can't do those. And now they're sinning, because there's rules that they were given they didn't have before, and therefore it makes God look like, well, that wasn't very fair. If you're going to criticize them and punish them, you should have told them all along. But that's not what's happening. Let's think about a different classroom now. Let's go to a kindergarten classroom. It's day one. And that kindergarten teacher, knowing what's in the heart of her children, she, she has rules. And she's eager to let them know what the rules are, but before she can even get the words out of her mouth, little Billy hits little Timmy. Because little Billy wanted to sit in little Timmy's seat. And little Timmy said no. And little Billy just went and popped him on the head. Now at this point, the teacher hasn't said one of my class rules is you don't put your hands on anyone else. So he hasn't 
technically broken a rule. But is he wrong? Yes. He's wrong because he did something that even in his own conscience he knows was wrong. He didn't love his neighbor as himself. He didn't need to be told that was a rule for it to be a rule. Now imagine later on the day the roles are reversed. And little Timmy's just had enough of little Billy. And it's now his turn. But they've heard the rules. Now Miss Johnson has told them, rule number one, keep your hands to yourself, no matter how mad you get. But little Timmy on the playground just ah, pushes little Billy. It's still the same act. But now, little Timmy's been told, that thing you're doing is wrong, and it's against the rules. It's a different act. It's the same in many ways, but it's different because now not only is little Timmy not loving his neighbor, he's actually violated the clear instruction of his teacher. That's what the law is doing here in the Old Testament. It's not making something, it's not like people were just doing their own thing and then all of a sudden God just said, ah, here, here's, a, here's a list of arbitrary rules and now if you, if you don't do them, you're going to be in trouble. No, what He's doing is showing them, you've always been sinners. You've always been little Billy. Before I could get the words out of my mouth, don't hit. You've already been selfish and sinful and ready to do things you shouldn't do. Now all the law is doing is allowing God to go back to the, to the list on the board and say, did you break that one? Break that one? What does that mean of you? It means you're a sinner. You, you, you are a sinner. And that's, that's, that's the point Paul's making here in this passage. Look at the rest of verse 19 through 20. He says, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Now, we could spend a lot of time here. There's a lot going on. But the point Paul's making is that the law was given by God through a messenger, most likely an angel, to Moses, and then Moses functioned as a mediator. So he's pointing out the difference between the Abrahamic covenant in which God addressed Abraham personally, and he's saying the Mosaic covenant, which an angel most likely delivered things to Moses, and Moses delivered it to the people. And remember why that's important. Because they're thinking the Mosaic law is far more important. And by making this distinction, what, what, what Paul's doing is he's demonstrating yet again how the Mosaic law should not be viewed is superior or even equal with the Abrahamic covenant. Now, by making this distinction between law and promise, what does that do? It raises a new question. See, once you answer one question, it raises a new question, and that brings us to our second point here, in, beginning in verse 21, the solution that is outside of us. Listen to the next question now Paul has to address, because he said what he said, now that raises this question, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Here, 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 here's kind of what's get, being gotten at here in asking that question. If the law of God was meant to accomplish something totally different than the promises of God, then does that mean the law of God and the promises of God are incompatible? Remember, the law of God is, is, is coming through the Mosaic Covenant. The promises of God are coming through the Abrahamic Covenant. And Paul, if you're saying that they don't have the same purpose, one is to do this and one is to do that, then are they incompatible? And the answer, he says, is 
No. No, they're not incompatible. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Paul says, certainly not. To say that they were incompatible would be like me saying, because the transmission in my car and the engine don't do and accomplish the exact same thing, they have no purpose in my vehicle. They don't make the car run because they don't do the same thing. Well, of course they don't do the same thing. One is needed to do one thing and the other is needed to do the other thing and together they make the car run. So Paul's saying, no, you're getting it all wrong. If you think the Mosaic Covenant and the Abrahamic Covenant because they do two different things, they have no place together, then, then no. You're mistaken. And then he goes on to say this in the rest of this verse into verse 22. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that, by the, that, so that by the promise, by faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Do you, do you get what's being said here? The law was never meant to give life. That was never the reason God gave the law of God. It was never meant to give life. Trusting in the promise of God alone is the source of life and blessing. And the promises that God made to Abraham, they were meant to point beyond his day. That's what he's saying here. The, the promises God made to give life and blessing were given to Abraham. And when he gave them to Abraham, they were meant to point way beyond Abraham until the time that Christ came. They were meant to point to Christ who would give spiritual life to all who believe in Him. Then that raises the question, then what's the point of the law? Well, Martin Luther, the reformer, said it well. The law was meant to convict human beings of sin so that they would be driven to Christ. See, the point of the law was never for us to say, okay, I'm going to keep it. point of the law was to say, you can't keep it. That's why you need a Savior. It was never to make us say, well, I haven't kept a lot of it, but I've kept more than my neighbor. It's meant to say, you know what? Whether I've broken one or I've kept a whole bunch of them, I'm guilty before God and deserve the same consequences. That's why I need the Savior. That was the point of everything God was doing in the Old Testament. It was to prepare for the coming of Christ. And Paul goes right there in verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the, until the coming faith would be revealed. You see, Paul says before Christ came, the people of God were under the law of God as a means of showing them how guilty and helpless they were on their own. Think of the law like this. The law of God was to an Israelite what an ankle monitor would be for a convicted felon on house arrest. The law was a reminder to them, not you're better than the Gentiles. That's why you need to separate yourself. From them. The difference between you and them 
is you are aware of the rules that you violated. And you are aware that you can do nothing to right them. That's why you need sacrifices. That's why you need, that's why you need a, a temple and a tabernacle. And that's why ultimately you need a savior. That was the point of it all. See, the law was a constant reminder to God's people that they were not free. They were guilty and restricted and limited in many ways. And he goes on to illustrate that using illustrations from that time that may not resonate immediately with us, but I still think we can be helped by these. Look what he goes on to say in verse 24. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came. So he, he moves on for saying, we, we were all imprisoned by the law. And he said, the law was like the guardian. It was like we were children and we had a guardian. Now, this is where we have to make some connections between then and today. In that culture, in that time in which this letter was written, in the Greco-Roman world, they didn't just have schools that you sent your children to, but you would want to educate your children. So most of the time, you had one of your household slaves be kind of the, the, the babysitter. They made sure the kids got up, they got their stuff, they weren't goofing around, they weren't doing like what that first teacher was allowing the students to do. They're not thumping each other with pencils, they're not throwing things, they're not, you know, they're not jumping off their desks, they're working. They didn't necessarily teach them, they just made sure you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. And that's the illustration Paul's using here. The law of God was meant to function like a babysitter until the fullness of time had come. And when was the fullness of time? When Christ came. So when God gave the people the law at the time of Moses until the time of Christ, the law was meant to be like a babysitter saying, ah, nope, ah, you, you did it again. Can't keep doing that. But that was never, the point of the law wasn't to remain so that we could then find faith and come to faith and find life and find spiritual blessing. No, there was a purpose that the law was given. And it said in the second half of verse 24 into verse 25. Why was a guardian given? Why did the scripture or why did, did, did God's people need to know that they had this guardian to look over them? Listen to the rest of the verse. So then, the law was your guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. That is the reason God did what He did in the Old Testament. I said it last week. I'll say it again. I don't think we can... I, I don't think this can be overstated, especially in our Bible Belt culture. I think a lot of people kind of are familiar with the Bible, but don't really understand the story of the Bible. And I think we can think the Old Testament is about law. And the New Testament is about grace. Wrong. The whole story is about grace. God made promises to Abraham that had nothing to do with who he was, what he had done, what he had accomplished. And the law didn't change that. The law just showed them, do you see why I made these promises to Abraham? Because if it was left up to you, you are up the creek without a paddle. Actually, you're at the bottom of the ocean dead and you can't do anything about it unless someone comes and rescues you. That was the point that Paul's making here. Verse 24, 
end it says, in order. I love that. Here, here's the reason all of this occurred. Here, here's why God did all that He did, that we might be justified by faith. And He goes on to say, but now faith has come. We are no longer under a guardian. See, if the law of God cannot solve the problem because it only reveals the problem, then we must look to another source outside of ourselves to reconcile us to God. You see the problem? You see what's happening here? You see, if the law of God cannot solve the problem because it only reveals the problem, then we, we must look beyond ourselves. We must look beyond who we are and what we have, and we must look to something else. Actually, we must look to someone else. See, the solution to our sin problem can only be found in Jesus Christ. Therefore, we must place our faith in Him alone. What does it mean to be justified by faith? Justification by faith simply means this. That we are all guilty before God and aware that we're guilty before God. But we know that Christ came, lived a perfect life, died to pay for our sins. And what we're saying is, my, my confidence in being made right with God is not because of anything I've done or failed to do. It's in Jesus alone. That's what it means to be justified by faith alone. It says, my right standing with God is out of my hands. And that's good news. It's in the hands of another. Now, what difference does this make to believe in justification by faith alone? How does this change the way we view ourselves and the way we view those around us? Well, some time ago, I, I stumbled upon this quote from president of a seminary named Al Mohler, and he said it so well. Listen to this. Most Americans believe that their problem is this. Something has happened to them and their solution is going to be found within them. They believe they have an alien problem, meaning a problem outside of themselves that has to be solved with an inner solution. Just know that's what all your neighbors believe. Maybe that's what you believe. But you believe that something has happened to you and the solution is to be found within you. They believe they have an alien problem that is to be solved with an inner solution. The gospel says we have an inner problem and the only solution is an alien righteousness. Those are two radically different messages. So if you wonder, okay, what, what is all this talk of justification by faith? What does it have to do with us? I, maybe I understand that these people were struggling and they were doing all kinds of things like going back to the law, but what does this have to do with us? Know that the American air you breathe is this gospel. Your problem is outside of you and the solution is within you. That is a false gospel. Your problem is in you and the solution is outside of you. It's in Jesus Christ. Now what is this alien righteousness that is the solution to our inner sin problem? It's the righteousness of Christ. Listen, the good news of justification by faith alone is no small secondary doctrine that is of little importance to us as a Christian or to us as a church. Oh, listen, justification by faith alone 
is so important. It, it, if we lose it, we lose the gospel. Believing that we have an inner problem that can only be solved by Christ's righteousness has massive spiritual and social implications. Why do I say that? Because that brings us to point three. The Savior who unites us. Verses 26 through 29. Paul goes on to say, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now the point being made in this final section is this. The gospel eliminates all distinctions that could cause divisions among the people of God. The gospel eliminates all distinctions that could cause division among the people of God. Now listen to what I'm saying. It, it eliminates all distinctions that cause divisions. I didn't say that the gospel erases the category of gender and ethnicity. Those remain. He's not saying there's no longer a man and there's no longer a woman and there's no longer any different ethnicities. That's not the point he's making. He's making this point. If you belong to Christ, then there is no biological or social category that separates you as a child of God. When we come in this room, it doesn't matter what our gender is. It doesn't matter what our economic status is. It doesn't matter what our political affiliation is. It doesn't matter any of those things. What matters is do you belong to Christ? That's the point he's making. That's why he says what he does in verse 26. And then he just kind of teases it out in 27 and 28. And then he just makes this bold claim in verse 29. If you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Listen, it's those who've placed their faith in Christ that are children of Abraham. And therefore, Abraham's they receive Abraham's promise of spiritual life and blessing. And then notice what Paul does, being very intentional, knowing his audience. Verse 27. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Now here's a group that elevates what? Circumcision. And they would say, as Abraham's children, that's what you should do. And Paul does what he does so well. He says, notice, notice this. Notice the outward sign that distinguishes the children of Abraham from the rest of mankind. He doesn't say it's circumcision. He said it's baptism. Now that Christ has come, the sign of the covenant for all those who, heir, or who are heirs of the promise of God is baptism. In a moment, we're going to joyfully observe four people being Baptize. Now, why do we do this? Why do we baptize? Is baptism merely a ritual that Christians have been performing for around two millennia? And it's really just sentimental and ceremonial, kind of like pomp, um, pomp and circumstance at a graduation. I mean, if you never heard that song again, who would be with me on that? <laughs> okay. But listen, if you went to a graduation and, and all of a sudden the, the sound system went down and they couldn't play pomp and circumstance, guess what? All those people still graduated. 
It's not necessary. Do we see baptism that way? It's just kind of ceremonial. It's sentimental. But we, we, we may think it has no bearing on anyone personally or on us as a church corporately. I hope you don't believe that. It's just not something we do to go, oh, isn't that sweet? Oh, that, that, that's a neat ritual. It's not why we do it. Listen, even though baptism doesn't save, Christ saves, and we experience the saving, the salvation of Jesus through faith. Even though, so let's be clear there, baptism is not doing anything this morning. These four that are getting in this water, this water isn't making them any more right with God than they are because of Jesus Christ and their faith in Jesus Christ. However, baptism is extremely significant because it's a public declaration of a new identity. You see, the ones being baptized, here's what they're doing this morning. They're declaring that because they've placed their faith in Jesus Christ, they are not defined by their social status. They're not defined by their ethnic identity. They're not defined by their marital status or by their age or by their gender. What defines them and sets them apart is their relationship with the triune God. Jesus said, Make disciples of all people, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Those that are coming this morning says, I don't care that you know anything about my, my gender, my ethnicity, my upbringing. Here's what matters. I once was lost, but now I've been reconciled to God. That's what matters. Now think about how countercultural that kind of declaration is. So if you're wondering, okay, is baptism just some neat thing we do? but has no bearing on the life of the church. Think about what's about to take place in just a moment. How countercultural it is. Our culture is divided by race and gender and politics and so much more. So many people in our culture right now, they root their identity and their distinctions. Who they are is not about who they really are. It's just who they're not compared to someone else. Their identity is found in their distinctions, their ethnicity, their gender, their sexuality, their political affiliation, their economic ide ideology. That's what people want you to know about them. They say, here's how I voted. Here's what I believe about this. I'm against capitalism. I'm for this. That's how people want their identity to be known. But those who belong to Jesus, what defines us is not our differences, but our union with Christ. Look at verse 27 again. For as many of you who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You know what that means? All of a sudden, Christ becomes your identity. You put Him on. It's no longer about any of those other things. That's not what defines us. It's Christ. Now, can you see why these baptisms that are about to take place are not just ritual? These baptisms, church, they are culture-shaping, community-creating expressions of God's grace in Christ. Everything you're about to see is opposite of everything you see on the television. People are going to say, I don't want to be identified by anything else but the fact that I belong to Jesus Christ. That's what defines me. And I don't define those around me in this room for any other reason, but they belong to Jesus Christ. And that's all that matters. Lastly, I want you to know this about these baptisms. I think we can often see baptism 
as this thing we do to publicly declare we belong to Christ. And that is one aspect of baptism. But I think we miss maybe one of the most richest, most sweetest things that baptism is meant to do in a moment when those who step down into that water, you know what they're doing? They're not just declaring to you, I belong to Christ. Christ is publicly declaring they belong to me. See, baptism isn't as much about what they're doing. It's more about what Christ is going to say. He wants the world to know, these are my people. These are mine. These are mine. I want you to know that. I purchased them. They're mine. And nothing will ever change that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time now. Thank you for this passage this morning that happened to be next in Galatians, and it reminds us of the beauty of baptism. Lord, how kind of you, even in our series and the date that this fell, Lord, you you wanted to remind us of these truths. Now, Lord, we've heard them. But now comes the hard part. We, we, We must respond to these truths. And the last thing we want to do is hear these truths and think, well, all we got to do is do them. Lord, we can't do them apart from your help. That's what we learned this morning. So help us. And forgive us for all the ways we have failed to do what you've called us to do. Lord, may what we're about to do in observing these four baptisms, may, Lord, it bring glory to your name. May it strengthen the church. And may be a compelling witness to anyone here this morning who can't say, I belong to Christ. May it be a testimony to them that they too can come and experience a right relationship with you because of what Christ has done. So Lord, would you use this bab- these baptisms to bring glory to your name. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.